Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Matthew Rajansky, who is the president and CEO of the U.S. Russia Foundation. Matt is one of the leading U.S. experts on Russia with experience across the U.S. government and in policy research and academia. Prior to USRF, Matt served as the director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute and has previously worked at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. He has written extensively on the history and practice of U.S.-Russia relations, bilateral exchanges, and the rule of law. Thanks for joining us today, Matt, at this critical moment. Thanks very much, Dan. You know, Dan, if I, if I can start just by saying, you know, my heart has been in my throat every day for two weeks now because, uh, as you mentioned, you know, I, I did research for the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. Um, this was right before the Revolution of Dignity in 2013, and a number of my Ukrainian friends have gotten out. Uh, with their families, but many of them are still there. Some are fighting, some are under bombardment, others are kind of tentatively safe, but it's day by day and I'm constantly checking in with people by text message and you know WhatsApp and so on. And this is a catastrophe unleashed by Vladimir Putin on the Ukrainian people, but frankly also on his own people. Why did this happen? This is so, it's such a horrible situation, Matt. Why, why how did we get to this place? I think, the best explanations for this essentially black box of what is this one man who rules Russia as an autocrat? Uh, what is he thinking? I mean, that you know, none of us really know. But the best explanations have indicated that um, whether he's rational or irrational by our lights is is secondary. He clearly has radically different information uh, than the rest of the world. It was clear to so many of us who've spent our lives and careers in and with uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians that Ukraine is not what he imagines it to be. Putin clearly thought that there was some way for him to roll into Ukraine with military forces and make it again some kind of subordinate part of, of, of the Russian world. And, and that just was not even remotely possible. It's crystal clear that Ukrainians don't want that. Uh, that's why they're fighting uh, and continuing to risk their lives and endure these massive costs. That's why, you know, this sort of kabuki theater of diplomacy where the Russians come and say, well, if you'll agree to sign away your sovereignty, then we'll stop killing you. That's not working and it's not going to work uh, because this is not something the Ukrainians uh, will agree to. And, and if I can add, I think that uh, Putin has uh, sealed the fate uh, for the Russia-Ukraine relationship for generations. And it's quite understandable that Ukrainians, of course, they hate him, uh, but they increasingly are frustrated and angry at Russians who uh, seem to passively accept Putin. And the other side of that equation is, of course, those Russians who don't. And I think there are millions of them. And Putin has has ramped up repression against them as well. And that, of course, is that's where uh, USRF comes in. You know, we have had a long-standing mission since 2008 as a foundation and before that as the U.S.-Russia Investment Fund, TUSRIF, which you mentioned, to develop the building blocks of uh, what is ultimately 
democracy and a productive U.S.-Russia relationship, but that depends on the private sector, that depends on free enterprise, innovation, rule of law, education, exchanges, scientific developments, etc. Those are the things in which USRF is invested. And at this moment, what we see more than anything is that Russia's best and brightest, the people in all of those fields, are either internal dissidents under extreme duress within Russia, they have been pushed out of the country by the tens of thousands for fear of their safety and that of their families, or they cannot go back and therefore are in the West and in quite urgent and immediate need of our support and engagement. These, these people are the future of Russia. Uh, these people are opponents of, of Putin's brutal and illegal uh, attack on Ukraine, and these people need our support. How much support do you think Putin has? I've seen polling that has it above 50% for support for this so-called special operation in Russia. It's appalling to me that there be any support whatsoever in Russia. But I worry that in the West, we're underestimating the level of support, that there is some level of popular support who believe who, who share some kind of belief that we would consider very offensive and kooky that Ukraine should somehow be a subordinated part of a greater Russia, but that there may be some significant part of the Russian population who sort of buys that argument. And I think it's one of the reasons I think that when we've thought about Putin, we say, well, is he crazy or not? I actually would argue in his own messed up way, he's got a logic. I don't like his logic. I found his logic deeply offensive. I think what's happening just like you is just, it's just heart-wrenching and disgusting. It's appalling. It offends me at the, you know, as it does hundreds of millions or billions of people have just been appalled by what they've seen by Russia's actions. But there's, I worry that there's some percentage of the Russian people who are really okay with this. You, I've seen people paint Zs on their car, which I guess the letter Z has become the symbol of sort of support for the Russian special operation, which is a fan, a nice way of saying a full-on invasion of a sovereign country, Ukraine. I saw it with this gymnast putting a Z on his uniform. I've seen this in other places. Now, I know some of this may be juiced up by disinformation or an information bubble, but I worry that even if you took the information bubble off, there'd still be some percentage of the population, and we can't really know how much, but it strikes me as if there's still some level of support for that. It may be higher than 50%, which is really hard for us, hard for me to accept, but I worry that that may be the case. So number one, we don't have good data. And this is one of the results of a full-on autocracy, which is what Putin is running now. If it was the case that 10 years ago, we had you know fairly reliable polling data because it was useful to the kind of technocratic side of the regime in managing the economy, Look at the way they're managing the economy now, right? This is this is full on autarky. This is management by fiat, nationalization of assets and so on. They don't care about real public opinion. They want to create an artificial sense of public sentiment. And they're doing that through complete state control of the media. So we don't have good society wide data. But what we can say for sure is, of course, it's not just Putin, right? It's a regime. It's a system in which Putin has been the sun, moon and stars for a long time, but it's not the only one. There's been a lot of talk about uh, Russian oligarchs. Uh, these are the extremely wealthy people, some from the pre-Putin era, mostly, frankly, you know, Putin's cronies 
over the last 20 years who have just become mega billionaires uh, through this system, you know, look, they, they vote with their feet, right? So their yachts get confiscated, their estates, their uh, foreign bank accounts, and they might grumble a little bit. But to the extent that they stay in Russia and to the extent that they recognize that it's their income source that they care most about rather than their savings, uh, they're clearly aligned with the regime. The Siloviki, the, the sort of power ministry people that the former KGB folks, FSB, uh, SVR, et cetera, who surround Putin, the Security Council, which we saw meet in that, you know, absurd exercise of, you know, kind of almost Politburo style endorsement of Putin's decision, which had clearly already been made. We learned that as well based on the, the times on people's wristwatches. All these folks are, are complicit. They are, they are part of this decision and they are responsible for this criminal act. But I think we have to be very careful about concluding that, you know, this is majority opinion in Russian society. I've seen plenty of indications that dissent is extremely widespread. There probably are millions who are brainwashed by the state propaganda. There probably are millions more who are essentially hostages, people who feel like they can't risk, you know, 15-year prison terms or physical beatings, uh, losing their, their livelihood to support their families. And what we know for sure is that there are millions more who are coming out actively online there are tens of thousands actively in the streets. Over 13,000 have been arrested. Perhaps as many as 150,000 in the last three weeks alone have left Russia uh, through the various pathways we know about over land across the Finnish border, flying to places like Armenia, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, everywhere where they can get out of Russia. And as I said before, this is, this is the country's best and brightest. It's IT specialists, uh, it's free media, it's innovators of all kinds. One great frustration that I have had is that Putin over 20 years has built such control into all the state institutions, which, for example, includes universities, that he's able to get the formal leadership of these universities, the rectors, the presidents, etc., to endorse his positions, even though the overwhelming majority of faculty and students are in opposition, and we have seen them come out in opposition. And so this gives the impression that Russia's intellectual elite supports the war, which I don't think they do. I would argue, and I suspect you're going to agree with this, that I think their democracy is possible in Russia. Do you agree with that premise? I don't see any reason why democracy would be impossible in any country. One of the things I also worry about is we saw this with COVID and let's call it anti-Asian bias. I'm worried that we're going to have an overshooting of, because there's going to be understandable visceral anger towards Putin that maybe I'm going to describe it as misdirected towards innocent people who happen to be Russian. And may, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. And so I'm worried about over time us, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, and I think the Russians could also weaponize that as well as some kind of anti-Russian bias. I, I haven't seen a lot of this, but I worry that this is something that may may come up. Is this something that's crossed your radar? Yeah, I think we've seen some of this. I, I, I've got to note, first of all, you know, the Ukrainian people and all of those who are with them and stand with them, including myself, and I think, you know, most of the United States have every reason to be outraged at Putin, at the Russian government, and it's understandable that there is a lot of anger directed at Russia. But I've been proud of the U.S. government response, which has been very careful to distinguish between the Russian government and the Russian people. So the president of the United States has said, you know, to the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. Uh, the secretary of state has said, this isn't the Russian people's war. 
you, like people everywhere, want the same basic things. And then he talks about what I talked about earlier, you know, entrepreneurship, innovation, the ability to live a decent life with your family, etc. And, you know, there are these universal human values. And I think this is the moment at which people of goodwill need to stand up to stand with the Ukrainian people who are under uh, this extreme uh, and illegal attack, but also with the Russian people who oppose that because uh, they are the future of Russia that we want to see, not Vladimir Putin. So we have this critical opportunity. In my view, this isn't the time to kick Russians who want to be in the West and who want to be with the West out of our societies. Let's talk about that, because I think so, for example, should we kick Russian students out of American universities? Of course not. Look, you know, there are some very specific cases. We talk about the families and children of oligarchs and Siloviki uh, and so on who have been used as, you know, pass throughs for regime assets. Those are pretty exceptional cases. And in the, those cases can be dealt with uh, as they have been by law enforcement. But otherwise, when Russians make a positive choice to oppose the regime, they are forced to leave the country or they cannot go back home. They need a way to be connected to the wider international world because that is essential to building a different Russia in the future. And I think we have to stand with these people. Yeah, I, I worry about us overshooting on the sanctions as well, because I think the administration, is, I think, has taken a very thoughtful approach to this. But I think we need to keep the door open because of this issue that we're not we don't have a problem with the Russian people, uh, but there may be some other things we ought to, we would hope the administration might do. For example, I'm hoping President Biden may directly address the Russian people at some point. Yeah, I, I share that hope. I think he did speak directly to the Russian people before the outbreak of war. Secretary Blinken, as I noted, has spoken directly to the Russian people. Um, you see other senior U.S. officials have even gone on Russian television, just recognizing that this is the way to reach the majority of Russians, uh, even though knowing it's going to be filtered through a kind of propagandistic lens. One of the challenges we have to work on is the mechanisms for reaching Russians. Now, we're in a different reality. It's not exactly the Cold War, but it's something more like the Cold War than we've seen for 30 years. And it means we need to think about how to communicate with Russians. We have some really big assets, though, and that is Russia's free media, as Putin has slammed the door shut on, you know, these incredible outlets that we've known for 30 years in the post-Cold War era, like Echo of Moscow, right, Russia's free radio. These people have left the country. Uh, and so we have Russia's most trusted, most insightful voices outside the country now. Question is, how can we help and support them to communicate the truth about Putin's illegal attack on Ukraine and about the consequences of that in terms of isolating Russia and destroying the life that Russians have built over 30 years, because Russians are going to feel that more and more every day. And I think, you know, I, I want to be careful about predicting what happens next in Russia. That's an easy way to be wrong. But I think more and more as Russians feel kind of the twin moral uh, compulsion to speak out against this evil act against their neighbors and their, you know, their, as, as Putin himself has argued, right, their, their close relatives in Ukraine, they will also feel the pinch on their lives. You know, the incredible out of control inflation, the shutdown of Russian banks, the collapse of businesses that depend on connectivity to the global economy, and eventually the boycott of Russian goods internationally. I think that's going to push Russians out into the streets. So let's just talk a little bit more about this media. Should we be finding ways either through Radio for Europe? Should the European governments be trying to independently fund or stand up these as sort of independent media 
either, you know, broadcasting from Poland or broadcasting from Slovakia. Shouldn't we be doing something along those lines of, of kind of supporting these folks? So there are a lot of uh, people a lot smarter than I am about the how on this. At the U.S.-Russia Foundation, we've now for several years been committed to the idea that when you don't have the, the freedom needed for rule of law, proper entrepreneurship innovation at home, building the media environment and supporting a media environment that's going to facilitate moving in that direction is, in a sense, the best that you can do. And so we have supported projects to try to promote those goals through free media outside of Russia over the last several years. That, I think, is an area that's going to need more support now. But as I say, these opportunities fall into our lap because Russia's most trusted and most impressive independent journalists are flocking to Western countries to get out of Russia. Um, they're going to need to set up operations outside. Exactly how they do that, you know, they would judge better, and the folks who've done this kind of thing would judge better. But I think we, uh, speaking on behalf of the foundation, I think we're very ready and eager to provide that support. Tell the listeners about what is the U.S.-Russia Foundation? So the foundation is a legacy of the U.S.-Russia Investment Fund. Uh, that came in turn out of what I call the embarrassingly tiny Marshall Plan for the former communist world, that the United States came up with in 1989 under the Support for Eastern European Democracies Act, 1992, the Freedom Support Act, just general foreign assistance. But um, unfortunately, the sum total of it was $1.3 billion, which is like a rounding error. Post-Soviet space got $1.3 billion, which the I think entire... the Marshall Plan in American today's dollars was about $100 billion. Correct. Right. So and not only the post-Soviet space, North the entire post-communist space. So from Poland to Vladivostok. $1.3 billion. Um, obviously, we do, you know, non-proliferation, uh, non-Luger assistance. We did other programs, but this was kind of the core of the get these people back on their feet, help them develop a functional free market economy, et cetera. The Russian piece of it was was large comparatively. It was uh, about a third of a billion, 300 million or so. It was invested pretty well uh, in the sense that it had impact. It helped create private mortgage banks in Russia, you know, so the Russians could borrow money and buy a house, something they'd never done in Soviet times. Um, and it returned about the same amount, about a, a third of a billion came back out of it. Um, half of that was used right away in 2008 to create the U.S.-Russia Foundation, again, to continue supporting entrepreneurship, rule of law, education, innovation in Russia on the theory that that was necessary for a healthy Russian society and a productive U.S.-Russia relationship. The foundation did that until 2015 inside of Russia. In 2015, uh, in a move that in retrospect seems not at all surprising, the Russian government declared the foundation an undesirable foreign organization and kicked us out of Russia summarily. And so for the last seven years, USRF has operated from the United States with Russian partners, including folks in these countries that I'm now telling you about are, are, are seeing thousands of Russians in the new exile community flow in. Uh, so we have a lot of experience working in what we call a non-permissive environment, thanks to this 2015 declaration. Half of that endowment remains under the management of TUSRIF, of the investment fund in escrow, which basically means it's been frozen since the funds came back from their investments in Russia. And the original idea was to find ways to use that in support of the same aims, either through the U.S.-Russia Foundation directly or in partnership with the foundation. But because of you know, the difficulty of getting the U.S. government to move on the on the executive side, plus Congress for many years, nothing happened with it. 
Last week, the U.S.-Russia Foundation and TUSRIF boards met and passed a resolution condemning in no uncertain terms what Putin is doing to Ukraine, calling for support for Ukraine, and recommending that of those escrowed funds, $100 million go to support our sister institution, uh, the Western NIS Enterprise Fund, which does similar kinds of things in direct support of Ukrainians, to support uh, Ukrainians in their hour of need now in terms of jobs, education, training, everything they need, you know, being relocated and pushed out of their country, but also, we hope, rebuilding Ukraine which is going to need to rebuild its economy, opportunity, media, everything. And then with the remaining funds, it is increasingly clear to us that there is an urgent and immediate need to support this new Russian exile community. Um, literally hour by hour, I am getting new pleas from our grantees and partners uh, about Russians who are in dire straits and who are necessary for this different and better future uh, that we envision for Russia and for the U.S.-Russia relationship. It's a, it's a really was an amazing announcement. The funds had been held up for a long time. And it seemed, I mean, I just think what the boards of TUSRIF and U.S. Russia Foundation did last week is really unprecedented. And I think speaks to the, to the seriousness of the moment and the crisis of the moment. And I think I really just was, I thought it was, it was really very, very impressive what your boards did. I want to talk about the future of our relations with Russia. How, how do you we need to keep lines of communications open with the Russian people. How do you think we should do that? And talk about the role the U.S.-Russia Foundation should and could play in that, because I think it's a very important bridge institution between our two societies. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Dan. Some of the how is going to be pretty sensitive and, and kind of dependent on circumstances, given this, this incredibly repressive environment that Putin has created in Russia. So in the short term, we're going to be very flexible in dealing with our grantees and our partners as to how they can continue. Uh, in some cases, the urgent immediate needs are literally going to be physical relocation, protection and services for people. As we get from kind of the short to the maybe medium term, uh, I think we're going to be looking very hard at support for Russian independent media, as we talked about, you know, film producers and experts, people who have the ability to reach the Russian public to help them understand the reality of what the Kremlin is doing, not only to Ukraine, but to Russia, the in international isolation Russians are suffering, the repressions at home and the implications that that has for what every single Russian, as Secretary of State Blinken said, cares about, which is economic opportunity and human development for them and their families. I think we're also going to be looking to support organizations in and out of Russia that defend freedom of, ex of expression and information, property rights, and also Russia's international legal obligations, because there will be, we believe, a future Russia that will again want to be part of the international community through the European Court of Human Rights, UN bodies, etc. And then finally, you know, remember that this new Russian exile community, uh, you mentioned sanctions earlier, in part as a result of sanctions, in part as a result of the Russian uh, regime's counter sanctions, are basically leaving their country with nothing. And this is like Soviet times. Uh, their ATM cards, cards are worthless plastic. They're being allowed to depart with maybe a few thousand dollars in cash. In some cases, they're being strip searched, having their electronics confiscated. Um, so we're literally talking about uh, a crisis of exiles and emigres on the scale uh, that we haven't seen since the Cold War. And we want to stand with these people, uh, be there for them in their hour of need. 
Let me come back to this question of uh, a, a Marshall Plan. You know, it's easy for me to sit in my virtual ivory tower at a think tank, and we're both in the, the research business. And so perhaps it's easy for me to sit and say in retrospect and Monday morning quarterback decisions that were made more than 30 years ago around what kind of aid package was made. But I, I also share your view that we were, we tried to do a Marshall Plan on the super cheap in Russia and the post-Soviet space. Now it worked pretty well, largely in Central and Eastern Europe, but then everywhere else, it's been a mixed bag at best. In the former Soviet republics, other than the Baltic states, it's, it was a mixed bag at best, right? I mean, I think there was the question of who lost Russia. Well, I think we underspent, and I, you're not the only person who views it that we probably didn't do enough in Russia. I agree with you. I also think if you look at the Central Asian republics or the Caucasus or Ukraine, I think in Ukraine, we were able to invest in, in sort of a, a f- over 30 years, we helped create an, or a sense of nationhood and a, you know, supported a, a Ukrainian national aspirations. Or we also supported a very raucous and somewhat health, a pretty healthy democracy over time in Ukraine. But you know, if you look at their economic development compared to, say, Poland, I mean, Ukraine's got sort of the, the economic development of Guatemala, about $5,000 per capita, whereas Poland's got, I don't know, twenty-five dollars or $30,000 per capita. And I think they probably started at about the same level in 1989. So what could or should we have done differently? You know, you, you know, again, with the luxury of us being able to sit here and opine about it 30 years later, we, we didn't have to make those decisions at that time and in that context. I mean, it's, it's a great question, Dan. I would probably go back, you know, 80 years, though, and recognize that the the people who had the vision and foresight to propose and then deliver on the original Marshall Plan were people who had experienced World War II. And that was a different experience that I think shaped American and European perceptions of what matters differently than the end of the Cold War that sort of, you know, ended with a whimper, if you will. We really got lucky in the way that the Cold War ended. And so, the idea that if you don't invest now, you're going to pay later was very powerful for the likes of Kennan and Marshall and Truman and Eisenhower, who saw the original Marshall Plan through. I don't think that that idea in the era of the peace dividend, if you remember the early 1990s, was nearly as powerful. As you said, it was an attempt to do things on the cheap. But look at where we are now. Uh, the Congress is in the process of passing, you know, over $10 billion of emergency aid for Ukraine. Add that to multiple billions that we have committed in the past. This is a costly undertaking. And I would argue that we didn't invest sufficiently early on. We have let the Ukrainians down massively. And what we're spending now can never make up for it. It's not a matter of spending to make up for it. It's, it's too little, too late in many respects. And so going forward, I mean, all we can do is is move forward. And going forward, I think we just have to be cognizant that the costs are real. When we hear these warnings about, you know, what is going sideways in the former Soviet space, in Russia itself, or in other world regions, we have to take that seriously and recognize this isn't a faraway problem that Americans will never have to deal with. And Americans who are paying at the pump today, I, I'm not happy about it. I just filled my tank this morning at 4.25 a gallon, but I'm, I'm ready to pay that in recognition uh, that this is the cost of getting something right now that we failed to get right 30 years ago. 
I'd like you to spend a minute on Ukraine. You've done, so you're a Russia expert, but you've also spent some time in Kiev. I've been to Kiev a number of times. I, I get the sense that I'd say at least 80% of the country of Ukraine is very Ukrainian nationalistic. And about 20% is, I don't want to call it Russia curious, but are sort of Russia confused or something that there's some, there, there's a subset, you know, could you talk a little bit about before the war, what was sort of Ukraine's sense of its own identity? And just talk a little bit about what your experience was in Kiev. So yeah, I've, I've spent most of my career actually on Russia and Ukraine. And, and that was a kind of basket that at the beginning of my career really made a lot of sense. I mean, I, I worked in the historical archives, the former Communist Party archives on amnesties for people who uh, during and after World War II had been convicted of collaboration with the, the Nazi occupiers. And that was often a story about the Western former Soviet Union, Ukraine, Belarus, et cetera. And I would speak Russian uh, freely and everywhere uh, in Kiev, you know, in official settings and so on. It was, it was no problem. And I would recommend to people who, you know, felt in some way intimidated by going to Moscow or St. Petersburg, you know, Kiev would be the right place to go uh, to use Russian every day and, uh, and to have a great experience. It was, it was and is a city that I love, full of people that I care about. But for that same reason, I had a front row seat on what has changed. And that's why it was so clear to me when Putin began this aggression in 2014, there was a one-way street that whatever remaining vestiges of kind of kinship and warm feeling there was between Russians and Ukrainians, that Putin was destroying them. And in fact, now I think has destroyed them for generations, if not forever. And the result, ironically, is that those people you described as maybe Russia curious are overwhelmingly people who have been doubly victimized by Putin's assault on Ukraine. So for example, the 10 million or so people of the Donbass, of Donetsk and Luhansk regions, you know, of whom more than half became refugees flowing in all directions after Putin's original attack in 2014, have now become refugees a second time. And, you know, I don't have good data on this, but anecdotally, uh, I'm just hearing over and over and over how the conclusion that these people reach is not, oh, thank goodness, Putin has sent the army to protect us. It's what is wrong with Russia that it can send its forces to victimize people who feel have felt so close to Russia over and over and over again. And that is taking these last vestiges of closeness between Russian and Ukrainian people and just throwing it in the garbage. So if that was Putin's grand historic strategy for Russia and rebuilding kind of the Russian world, it's an absolute disaster. So in your mind, there will never there will never be there are folks who, let's call it, had kind of a Russian orientation. Most abs, the vast majority of those people are, are so appalled and find so deeply offensive what's happened that the chance of any kind of fraternal partnership with Russia, I, I, I would argue they're going to get a divorce after 400 years. Right. Isn't that sort of the way way to describe it? Yeah, I, I think that's what Putin has done to Ukraine. And as a result, that's also what he's done to Russia. I worry about the information vacuum in Russia. You've seen these stories of folks where people are calling, saying, I'm, I have family members in, in some part of Ukraine. They're calling a family member in Russia because of these links saying we're being bombed. And the people are just like, no, you're not. Like there's so there's such an information blackout. Are there ways to get through to the Russian people about this, the, the awful things that are happening? My hope is that the answer to that is yes. I think 
the ground is, is shifting under our feet. Russia is not yet North Korea. The internet is still on. People who want to have access to information still can. That is why you're seeing tens of thousands of Russians braving violence by the regime coming out into the streets. They're finding out what is really happening in Ukraine, but the regime has shown that it is a one-way street. They're not going to be reopening independent media, uh, and the kind of pressure that they're putting on everyone from businesses uh, which are being simply nationalized if they try to you know, reflect the moral views of their customer base and their employees by issuing statements. And the Russian government simply seizing assets, it's shutting down independent media, and it's pressuring uh, leaders of every civic institution, you know, from universities to sports clubs. That, I think, is why you see, you know, Russian athletes putting Zs on their, on their uniforms. This is a one-way street. So I worry that it ends in Russia, you know, becoming a kind of shut-off, uh, isolated, Stalinist, sort of place. But the lesson of history is when you do that, people more and more and more just simply try to get out. And so Putin will have hollowed out Russia into a husk of itself, and the country's best and brightest will flee. And we're already seeing that happen. As you said earlier, it's hard to say how this ends. All the scenarios are, are, are really, they're all terrible outcomes. They're all, all the outcomes are terrible. Yeah, I, I'm like everybody just in shock and my, my heart is in my throat every day as I realize that it looks as if what the Kremlin is prepared to do to Ukraine, this nation that Putin's own um, so-called historical articles has presented as part of Russia, as a brotherly nation, and yet it appears that he is willing to order his military to just bomb them into complete destruction, Syria-style, Chechnya-style. This is a human catastrophe, which is being wrought by an autocrat uh, on people who did nothing to provoke it whatsoever. This is the most unambiguous case, you know, I have ever dealt with in the post-Soviet space. It's, it's utterly shocking. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. Let's do this again. It's been an appalling and shocking the last couple of weeks. I think for you and for me, I, my, my heart also goes out for the Ukrainian people. You know, I, I think that we need to have channels of communication and connectivity with the Russian people. Our fight is not with the Russian people. Our fight is with Vladimir Putin and his small circle of horrible people around him. And so I just think it's what you're doing at the U.S.-Russia Foundation is very important. I also think having Russia and Ukraine experts like you is really important for the country because these are this is a part of the world that requires unique expertise and, and linguistic expertise and also understanding of history and understanding of how decisions are made. And because I think it's a we're going to have there's this part of the world is going to be increasingly salient, not less salient. And so we're just, you know, the stakes are, are way too high. So I really appreciate you coming on today. And I also, again, want to congratulate the U.S. Russia Foundation and TUSRIF for that important announcement about how they would propose allocating monies to support Ukraine, Ukraine, as well as supporting more people to people contacts with Russia to keep that door open for a day when we have a different kind of a relationship with Russia. And I, I hope that day comes sooner rather than later. And I, I want to believe in, that a, a multi-party democracy 
can happen in Russia and should happen in Russia. And I, I hope to live to see that day. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 